0: Aloha, unconventional friends. I hope you're doing well. It's Saturday evening here in Kuala Lumpur. I just finished recording an amazing conversation with one of my students, Amanda Silver. I really hope you're going to stay for the whole conversation. I have learned so much from her. And once again, the reason why I'm doing this podcast is on one hand, therapeutical for me because I never know what they're going to ask me and I never know what I'm going to ask them. But also, to be very honest, I learned so much. So many things, and I am always so surprised that my students are so mature, sophisticated, analytical, sensitive, wonderful people. Amanda and I pretty much talked about everything. We talked about siblings, U.S. politics, drag, the future of work, stereotypes, startups, God knows what else. Actually, I know what else because I was there. So I wanted to uh, to stay for the uh, for the whole. Uh, interview, we talk for almost an hour because we have many interesting things to say, but before we go into the five on five with Amanda Silver, I want to spend a little bit of time on talking about the things that I like and I want to talk about something that I like and maybe I already talked about it, I don't know, but Amanda brought it up and I want to talk about drag queens and I want to talk specifically about RuPaul and why do I like RuPaul so much i asked I asked Amanda why does she like drag queen so much and uh, you're gonna hear her answer, but I think one of the things that I always appreciated about um, communities that are on the um, um, if you want on the uh, um, minority spectrum or on the diversity spectrum or communities that are are in a subversive environment is their their strength their power, their resilience to be who they want to be despite the costs of being themselves. And um, I think if you really think about what is this whole thing about drag queens and why do people feel the need to impersonate somebody else is, I think, is um, a way to empower yourself to be who you want to be but in a way, the society, your family, the environment around you did not allow you to be that. And I also want to talk a little bit about a show that I'm absolutely obsessed with. I can't wait for the next season to uh, to be launched. I love Pose, P-O-S-E, Pose on Netflix. Pose, it's a show about the life of... Um, People from the LGBTQ plus community in <clears throat> New York in in the seventies, <clears throat> the rise of AIDS and uh, the the drag queens in New York City, but specifically is a show about the trans community, um, and I think this is a community that is absolutely, absolutely unjustifiably harassed by the Heteronormatives, or the whatever the power community at that point, and I was always, even as a child, who never really understood why we have, you know, different policies for people of different sexual orientation. Really, as a, as a child, I remember reading this uh, this book. It was the Decameron. Have you ever heard of the Decameron? Is um, it's a very, very, very classic. Uh, Italian um, Italian um, writer, I don't remember the author, but I remember reading in the Decameron about somebody who was transsexual, um, and I think in this case specifically was a hermaphrodite. And the story was beautiful, it was a love story. And I, I read it with so much joy and I read it with so much interest and so much passion And then at some point later on growing up, I saw a review about it. And and, uh, the reviewer was talking so dismissively about how can we even write about people on the spectrum? How can we even uh, uh, acknowledge their uh, existence? How can we glorify their diversity? And I remember being a, a young teenager and feeling very hurt by this lack of I guess, acceptance. So I never really understood. So anyway, once I started watching Pose, once again, Pose, P-O-S-E, I learned so much about this community. I learned so much about the power of drag, the power of standing up for your rights, the power of trying to fight to be yourself, to be your truly unconventional, honest self. and I would love for you to, to start watching it. Let me know what you think about it. Uh, keep in mind that if you are part of a privileged community right now, the wheels might turn. And um, I think there's this amazing poem, which I don't remember because my memory is shit, but you know, uh, when they went after them, I didn't say anything because they didn't come after me. And when they went after this once, I didn't say anything. I think, you know, what the poem is. Uh, but keep in mind that if you're part of a privileged community your responsibility it is to take care of, to take care of those who are underprivileged and ask yourself, why are they underprivileged in the first place? And why am I privileged? What made us more privileged than others? What lottery did we win that gave us the sense of entitlement to be, to think that we are better than others? So today I like drag queens. I like RuPaul. I like what RuPaul did for the community. I don't know exactly who RuPaul is. I'm just talking about the persona that RuPaul has. And I like so very much Pose. I know it's not a brand new show, but I highly recommend. I think you should watch it during this um, uh, this holiday season and maybe take a moment to reflect about why am I who I am and why am I the way I am towards others. Stand by for Five on Five with Amanda Silver. I promise you're going to Love it. I love talking to her and I will see you very soon.
1: Amanda Silver. Hello, Professor. How are you doing this evening or this morning for me?
0: (laughs) This day, this year, this something, something, huh? I'm, I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. I'm so excited to be here. I'm even more excited to be here and I know you just Celebrated Thanksgiving, so I want to uh, send you my thanks for being here with me today. Thank you.
1: Well, thank you. Yeah, we had a wonderful Thanksgiving filled with too many animals and too much to eat. So, we <laughs>
0: really. <laughs> so, um, Amanda, for those of you who don't know you, um, you are one of my MBA students. You're going to graduate, I think, next year if everything is okay. I mean, it has to be okay. Um, and uh, we have known each other for what? About a year now, right? That's right. So um, for those of you who are just joining us for the first time, this podcast has a more unconventional format, how else? And instead of me doing all the talking and all the asking of the questions, the format of this podcast requires each of us to ask five questions. Uh, So Amanda will have five questions for me. I will have five questions for Amanda. And the great thing is that I don't know Amanda's questions and Amanda doesn't know most of my questions. Probably the only ones that you know is my intro and my closing question. So, Amanda, are you ready to go five on five with this unconventional professor?
1: <laughs> Absolutely. I'm super excited.
0: All right. So I'm going to start with my my question to all my guests. Tell us a little bit about yourself and what makes you
1: unconventional. It's a great question. And luckily, I knew it was coming. Uh, I think I'll <laughs> have the advantage now of being able to uh, listen to your previous podcast. Um, For me, uh, I think that being unconventional is, it's an interesting term just because it's not something I've thought of myself as being until I got to ASB. Um, I think I grew up on this path of being incredibly conventional, incredibly uh, someone who would always follow the rules, someone who Mm -hmm. didn't want to get in trouble um, and just wanted to sort of be invisible. Um, And it took me a really long time to discover in myself the uh, things that made me unique, that made me interesting, um, and that I was interested in. So I think the thing uh, that makes me most unconventional is the way I think. I think I'm an unconventional Mm. thinker. Um, And this was something that I, I, in myself, thought was a flaw for a long time. Um, If you think of the way that someone organizes their closet, uh, if they put everything in a neat pile or they have, (laughs) A uh, way of color coding their sweaters. That is absolutely not me. Uh, I am the type of thinker who throws things on the ground, put things um, in different shelves and uh. really can't find things when I'm looking for them. Um, and it's a bit of a mess inside my head, I think, in a lot of scattered ways. Um, and what I discovered uh, later is that like the best way for me to put things together is through writing. So writing Mm. is really, that I organize my thoughts. Um, And when I'm doing that, I can actually find different patterns and different connections that I might not have found otherwise. Um, So writing started as sort of a tool just to make sense of the thoughts inside my head. And now it's actually become one of my strengths um, in the workforce. And even in my time working in startups, I was always able to take something really, really messy and turn it into a process document or turn it into something that made sense all of the different people in the company. Um, So, yeah, I love cleaning up messes and uh, (laughs) making really complicated things into something that even I can understand.
0: That sounds amazing. I have to say, knowing you now, um, I would have never thought that you're somebody who wanted to be invisible because you are such a visible presence. Uh, You are such an inquisitive, such an observant student, uh, and not just the student of the MBA, but the student of life great startup to this, uh, to this podcast, Amanda, thank you so very much for for your first answer. So like I said, the format is five on five, as soon as um, Amanda is done with her answer, she has a question for me. So I'm very excited to hear your first question for me. And I have no idea what you're gonna ask me.
1: I have lots of curveball questions for you. (laughs) I guess the first one I want to start with is uh, the first thing that I learned that we have in common, um, which people who don't know Professor Loredana probably wouldn't also guess, is that she is incredibly introverted, as am I. Mm -hmm. Um, So, of course, we we enjoy spending time with people and are very vocal with our opinions, but I wanted to ask you what you think is the biggest misconception about introverts.
0: Yeah, great, great question, and I feel like... um we talk so much about introverts as being shy and as being very uh, submissive and as being somebody who's, um, who's afraid to speak up their mind. And I think you have exhibit one and two here. Both of us are introverts, and I don't think any of us are shy or afraid to speak up our minds. I think um, what we have to understand is, first of all, putting labels on people is a little bit dangerous because everybody is a lot more than one. But I would say that in my case, and I'm sure in your case it's similar because we talked about this before, Mm -hmm. but in my case, as an introvert, all I want at the end of the day is to go home and be by myself so I can get grounded again. And I can be the life of a party, and I think you saw me, (laughs) Mm -hmm. and you can be the life of a party, Amanda, because we party a few times, and I think I have the the records to prove it. Mm -hmm. We can be the life of a party, but I think at the end of the party, I want to go home by myself, maybe with my cat and you with your cat, because we share this in common. And I I just need to recharge by myself. And um, I think a lot of people have this, uh, this idea that um, you can't really be very uh, outgoing, very expensive, very sort of like very loud, or at least in my case, I'm a very loud, uh, very assertive person and be introverted. And it could not be further from the truth. One of the things that I have discovered is that so many performers are actually introverted. So many actors and uh, musicians and um, artists are actually introverted. And I think all it means once again is this is how I recharge myself. The way extroverts like to go out and maybe hang out with friends at the end of a very long and busy day, I like to go out and be completely by myself, do nothing, do nothing, just literally Netflix and maybe take a bath?
1: I think there must be some correlation between introversion and cat ownership.
0: (laughs) You should do a study on that. (laughs) (laughs) Now, speaking of the things that we have in common, besides being introverts, we also have a very unconventional thing in common, which is we are both obsessed with drag queens. So, for those of you who don't know what drag queens are, these are usually performers that uh, impersonate either a different gender or they impersonate a character. So, both uh, both uh, Amanda and I are super huge fan of RuPaul Drag Race, and we actually share uh, messages uh, during the uh, during the competition shows about who do we like, who do we want to rule for. So, I want to ask you a question: Why do you think that we like? drag queens so much considering that we are pretty much white, hetero, you know, intellectual women. What's, what's the attraction? Why do you like drag queens so much?
1: Oh, I'm so glad you asked this. So I definitely share the same passion you have for drag queens. For me, it started only a few years ago when I discovered RuPaul's Drag Race and it was with some friends from the LGBTQ community who were obsessed with it, and they got me uh, really excited about watching it with them. We would go out to a to a gay bar, and they would have it on all the different screens, and it would just be a really social and wonderful experience of uh, this community around the show. So that really got me hooked. And I think for me, what drag queens bring to this world and to all of us who get to just enjoy their performances or them on TV is just this sense of confidence and this sense of um, embodying who you're meant to be even if that's not how you present to the world mm. your regular clothes or regular skin. Um, it's an exaggerated version of yourself and just this fearlessness that um, really only comes with incredible confidence um, and I think what I've also loved about, learning more about the sort of the scene and the history is that um, it's not just, you know, a fun thing to go see with your friends, but it really comes from an incredibly interesting and and being seen, especially like in New York City, Um, as, you know, that were incredibly stigmatized and Mm -hmm. was a way for mostly young gay boys who had been kicked out of their homes to um, find a community with each other and um, join these houses with their drag mothers. And I think that, yeah, it's just, a it embodies strength, it embodies resilience and also just a way to sort of um, get out of your own head for a little bit and just um, sort of be taken to a whole nother dimension. And
0: be very, very unconventional. And be
1: incredibly um, unconventional.
0: <laughs> one of our common friends, Emily Price. I was talking to her at some point about why do I like drag queen so much, and I was actually honest. I was like, I don't know why I like drag queen so much. And she looked at me with this very straight face, and she said, because you are one. <laughs> <laughs> and and as you were talking about it, I was actually thinking that it's true. It's uh, I have an exaggerated version of myself. I have this exaggerated fearless but i want to I want to build up a little bit on what you said about these um, The more you know about this uh, this uh, um, marginalized cultures, the more you realize that it's actually a form of fighting suppression mm-hmm. and um, I think uh, one of the things that Rupaul says is that he says that i 'm the king of marketing because uh, i I actually managed to market uh, you know uh, drag queens in a submersive way to. Yeah to a capitalistic society that does not accept unconventionality. And a lot of these stories are so touching and they are so human. And um, I, um, this is not a question for you for the podcast, but I'm sure that you have seen Pose, the mm-hmm. Netflix show. Have you seen it? Yeah, it's wonderful. <laughs> it's amazing. Guys, if you're listening and you haven't seen Pose, is one of the most beautiful shows and one of the most painful stories of Of human reality that i have ever seen it's it's a wonderful show so yeah you're a drag queen i'm a drag queen and like rupaul says everybody's drag because we were all born naked and the rest is drag.
1: (laughs) i say we need to study him in a marketing class hey there oh really well no we need to he's such a genius
0: Yeah, we have to. We absolutely have to. So speaking of uh, studying and speaking of things that, again, we have in common, it's so funny, Amanda, that you are from the United States. We met in Malaysia. We come from very different backgrounds. And I feel like we have so many things in common. It's ridiculous. So one of the things that, uh, once again, we share, we share a passion for... Uh, working in startups, and we share a passion for for being part of a, of a community that it's about to get something started, that it's about to create something new. Tell me a little bit about why are you so attracted to this startup culture, to this startup universe? What exactly tickles your intellectual and emotional bone when you think about, oh, yeah, I want to I join a startup. I want to be part of one. I want to start one.
1: Great. And I might ask you the same question because I'm really curious Okay, what, uh, whether we share the same reasons or um, whether there's something universal. So for me, um, just a little bit more of my background, I studied psychology in undergrad um, and really didn't have a plan for what I was going to do with that. I always just thought that people were really fascinating um, and People mm-hmm. were everywhere, so if I studied people, then I could probably find a job at some point. Um, and when I was in my senior year of undergrad, I learned about this program called Venture for America, uh, which is a model to help uh students from uh, universities to find jobs in startups and startups in emerging entrepreneurial ecosystems. So instead of finding a job in New York or DC, where there tend to be um, a lot of talent already going, going to places like Detroit or New Orleans. So I actually was working in Detroit for about four years before I joined ASB, uh, first as the third employee and first woman at a property management technology startup, and then a autonomous oh. vehicle transportation startup. Um, And this world was completely new to me. Like I had no experience. I had not had like a real full-time job before with a salary or anything like that. Yet my first job was basically designing jobs for other people and figuring out how to manage people. Uh, Being in property management, it also meant going to all these different properties in the city of Detroit, and I'm just this like newbie. hasn't even lived for a month, <laughs> and I'm going around and I'm asking like, "Can I make a copy of your key?" Um, it was a lot of- in Detroit. In Detroit.
0: In Detroit, yeah, I- which is not for those of you who don't know, Detroit is not a. The most uh, the softest style, That's right? right?
1: It is a place where you should be a little bit careful. It's a wonderful city; highly recommend visiting, but uh, don't be stupid. So yeah, <laughs> there was definitely. Uh, I think the whole like attraction for me was just this autonomy that I had and this agency to like. No one was really telling me what to do. I did have, you know, the COO was my boss, and he kind of gave me some guidelines, but overall, it was a all right, Amanda, like, here's what we need done. Um, here's a few things to, like, think about and go off and I'll, like, talk to you at our next check-in next week. Um, so, yeah, figure it out. Exactly. Right? Go and figure it out. So, a ton of learning um, just being in the startup world. But what I think attracts people to startup, um, even if they're not in one or if they're just, like, following the news of different startups or they're interested in starting something themselves, is it's really just this, um, like, overall... Like trial by fire stories that here mm-hmm. and the like, some of them obviously you can glamorize in the hindsight because when you're going through it, it's incredibly difficult. Yeah, um, but it's this you know up by your bootstraps, figuring things out. Um, and as someone who's also really passionate about creating good jobs and the world of of employment, um, especially for people who um, are tend to be in really low wage, dead end jobs um, or what. Referred to as yeah. dead-end jobs and they could be much better um i think that um the, there's just something to really admire about having a job where you get mm-hmm. to direct your own path um yeah. that more people would want in in their jobs if they had the sort of the design or the empowerment to to make those types, types of decisions yeah but i have to
0: say directing your own path uh, it does something very it does sound very glamorous and very exciting and very empowering but not everybody's not everybody's made for for a startup not everybody survives this
1: jungle that's right not everyone survives and also uh, it can be when you're actually in it you're you're not directing your own path as much as you might think because you have customers no. you have stakeholders you might say you have no boss but your bosses just turned into a lot more people um, exactly but <laughs> I, I <laughs> love
0: I love when uh yeah, I love when young, young people tell me that I want to be an entrepreneur because I want to be my own boss. And I'm thinking, you do realize that at that point, you own every problem. You can't go to somebody and say, can you fix this? This is not my problem. I don't know how to deal with it. it you're, you're doing it. You're doing everything. And I feel like the sense of responsibility and ownership of problems, it's so much higher when you're in a startup.
1: That's right. It is constant responsibility and just always having um, sort of that nagging uh, when you, you can't sleep at night without there being something that's that yeah. you should be thinking about. Uh, exactly. But I guess one of... Uh, oh, yeah, go ahead. Uh,
0: I, I, was just, I was just remember uh, remembering one of the, uh, the guests that I had on the podcast, which you know, Jack Farrell, who's also an MBA student, but also a VFA fellow. He said that the way he started his, his new business, Love, 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 is... He, he can't sleep at night he's so obsessed thinking about it that he literally cannot sleep at night and he cannot do anything else but this
1: which sounds great and then at some point you might get burned out but i think he has That's so much true. energy but i don't think it's yeah there.
0: he's he's young and strong he can afford to do that now you know what i just realized i got so excited to talking about you uh with you that i asked you two questions so now i feel like you owe me two questions mm-hmm. i'm sorry about that but i do feel like we we're gonna go very unscripted the two of us because we have way too many things in common to stay on the script. <laughs>
1: we don't need a script. And now I get to ask you two questions in a row. Yep. but go ahead. We'll build off of what we just talked about. I did actually want to see your opinion. So what do you think attracts people to start a company, especially knowing how hard it can be? Um, and do you think most people know what they're signing up for? You've obviously, obviously spent a ton of time in startups yourself and also yeah. research on startups. So I'm just really curious to hear your thoughts.
0: So I will start with your second question. No, I don't think people know what they get themselves into. And I think if they would, they would probably not do it. Um, I would say if you're doing it for the third or the fourth time, then by then the jungle seems a little bit more familiar. Um, but I think there's a specific type of people that gets very attracted by solving problems for others and for themselves. And um, for for those of you listening, uh, you might know or you might not know why am I assuming that you actually know who I am <laughs> but uh, I spend a lot of time doing research in entrepreneurship and I built this framework that I call it nail it scale it sale it and I refer to the f- first stage the stage that Amanda just asked me about uh, I refer to it as a stage similar to going through the no idea what you're doing but just having an objective and a goal uh, without the real path so to be honest, Amanda, I don't think that people know what they are doing when they're getting themselves into this. But I think that's also a good thing, because you do need to be a little bit crazy. You do need to be a little bit, you know, not uh, fearless in in the sense that you're you're you know irrational, but knowing what to. People that love to solve problems for the first time, and I call them the nailers. And I think these nailers are people that love to—they love to see a problem and solve the problem. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think people like you, you, spend time together. You love to fix a problem that has been probably uh, hacked that has a hacked solution and you love to come in and, and fix it. And I think uh, people like you, who I think there are scalers, they are very, very, very good for companies in a, in a scaling mode. These are the very valuable people, believe it or not. I think a lot of people can start something, but not a a lot of people can scale something.
1: Yep. I definitely am a scaler. And I think that also goes back to um, what I love about startups is like something that, you know, someone like you goes in and they want to get things going off the ground I like thinking about how we can make it work for you know 10 more people 20 more people add more customers like replication is what's really cool about um, building a company is just seeing something that you did and now all of a sudden 10 people are, are following that process and it's it's really a power empowering feeling
0: And all of my research, what I learned is that actually companies don't fail in a nailing mode. The majority of the companies Mm -hmm. fail when they try Mm -hmm. to scale. And one Mm -hmm. of my colleagues from MIT, Professor Bill Ouellette, says that if you use the same behavior that made you successful in the jungle, uh, if you use the same behavior when you try to start scaling a company, you're actually going to fail because you're changing environments. So in my research, I say that scaling feels a little bit like hiking up a mountain. Uh, and obviously, from the jungle to the mountain, it's a very different environment. Yes, it's still an adventure in nature if you really want to be, uh, you know, very specific about it. But actually, the adventure is very different. Um, and uh, yeah, I uh, I could talk about this for forever, to be honest. Um, but I uh, I think that there's a reason why uh, a lot of millennials, for example, and a lot of Z's now, Generation Z, are attracted to startups. I think because of this sense of ownership, sense of responsibility, and sense of uh, truly, truly uh, contributing versus being part of a very large, very uh, programmatic system where you're just one of the many, many, many little wheels
1: uh, that run the company. Your work feels like it has meaning to it when you can see the results in in your day-to-day. And I'll just put in a shameless plug for Professor Laura Donna's TED Talk, which she talked framework and I would highly recommend checking it
0: out. plug it in plug it in I just noticed yesterday that I got 165,000 views I think it's because people don't have a life and they need to do something on YouTube and probably they ran out of cat cat videos to watch (laughs) Uh, but yeah when you ran out of a cat video and you want to learn something check it out on on TED it's called Nail It Scale It sale It or you just type my name I'm that famous I'm kidding, guys. I'm not. <laughs> All right. Uh, like I said, I feel like I, I owe you a, a, a question. You can ask me now. You can ask me later. What All right. Going
1: I'm going to ask you my next question, which is. Um, All right. So Perfect. I'm going to imagine an alternative universe where ASB never got off the ground. So this is a sad place. Uh, maybe Dr. Zetty never had the idea. Maybe MIT never signed on. Um, but either way, Hey, I'm yeah. really curious uh, in this alternative universe where there was no ASB, what do you think you would be doing right now? Um, what, would you, what would you do? Oh, right, where in the question.
0: world would you be? I love this question. I actually thought about it just for one second. I don't think mm-hmm. about what ifs, but I thought about this for a second. And right before signing my, my new contract with MIT, I actually started uh, my third startup uh, and it was called Dress Me. And in 2014, I I realized that I was faced with a problem that a lot of my friends had, which is if you want to go online, shopping online, especially for women's clothing, you are overwhelmed by the Mm -hmm. amount of choices. So you could go to Amazon, and you could search for a white blouse, and you get 15,000 search results. But then the algorithms for search, I I think, and I apologize if I'm wrong, but I think a lot of the algorithms for search are designed by men who are very um, prescriptive. Right. So white blouse, short sleeves. Now, I don't know about you, Amanda, but women don't buy white blouses with short sleeves. They want to get something cutie, flirty and light, good for a date. We use very different attributes. So. I, I, I kept thinking. I wish I had a solution. I wish I had. I, I I could go to a place where I could say, dress me for you know feeling powerful, uh, having to go from the office to a meeting and that. then going out. I couldn't find anywhere an answer in this. So I started my own company. I actually hired a couple of uh, very young girls from Boston, uh, which I loved. I loved them. Renee was was one of them, and Emma. Um, and we built it together in my living room, and we had um, an app developer in India, which uh, was one of my students from Indian School of Business, and uh, when I got the offer from MIT, I was actually in the process of finding, uh, you know, um, a VC for my first round of investments, and I have to say, I was very torn for like a minute or so, because I was like, OK, I have the opportunity to build my own company or I have the opportunity to go and build a school. And I said yes to ASB, but I, I wish to believe that if I didn't come to ASB, I would have been by now the, the CEO of DressMe. And it would have been probably in the third round of, of uh, investments and we would have been one of the most powerful women led uh, tech startups in the United States and in the world.
1: I think that is a great alternative universe and we would all love to use that product one day.
0: I know. (laughs) Now you make me feel a little bit melancholic. I'm like, oh, I could have been like a cool (laughs) CEO. But I guess I'm a cool professor now. Listen, speaking of professors, Alila Birdie told me that you want to apply for a PhD program. Why do you want to do a PhD and what do you see in your universe not alternative but in this universe so why why do you want to pursue more more learning and more education that is
1: something that I still ask myself um but I have a good answer for it (laughs) I think it's also especially a strange decision given you know with the pandemic we're seeing higher education really struggling uh people are trying to figure out what is the role of these institutions and why am I going into this path that seems to be having an identity crisis of its own. Um, but for me, I, I actually, so when I started at ASB, PhD was never really on my mind at all. Um, I thought that I would join the program um, and learn for me, I, I really wanted to just learn the inner workings of capitalism was like my primary goal, which is not typical of an MBA. I wanted to see how managers think um, when I was in the workforce. Mm. I had been observing all these things that really bothered me, um, especially in the startup community when it came to uh, sort of the gig economy. So a lot of the jobs where we were creating at these were for yeah. um, these really unstable you know, hourly jobs. Um, or you had to have your own car and all these barriers to entry that, um, you know, without the benefits of healthcare or a stable salary. Um, And same thing with the amount of, um, let's call it atomization. So breaking down a job into um, tasks and then assigning those tasks to one person. So basically turning a job into an assembly line, um, the same Henry Ford did. Um, But that, as we know, if you're working on an assembly line, that's not a good job. Um, it might be more efficient, but uh, the people on the line are, are just mind numbing yep. work. So I was observing these things Absolutely. and like all these instincts that founders and, and myself had working in the workforce um, to make the jobs more efficient that were actually really bad for workers. Um, So that was part of my decision to join an MBA is I wanted to see why do we have these incentives um, to basically turn work into this, um, you know, very regimented, very obviously standardized um, and efficient type of task that at the end of the day um, makes people suffer um, and uh, end up paying really low wages that they can't really get by on. Um, and where, where do these instincts come from and um, how can we come up with better solutions to make jobs for people that are sustainable mm. as, as human beings? So I, um, yeah. but again, like PhD was not on my mind as the potential path. Um, but what I, what I learned um, in the MBA program was I, I love all of my classmates and uh, formed really great friendships. Um, but when we would talk about our career paths, I was always like, hmm. I'm not sure if I really want to apply to something like that or I, that sounds like your motivations and interests are not quite aligned with, with mine um, and career goals. Mm-hmm. But when I would talk with my professors, I would say, wait, <laughs> what you're doing sounds awesome. Like yep. I could like the amount, I think we've talked about this before, but the job of a professor ultimately is um, getting paid to be curious Um And I just love learning incredibly deeply about subjects that I care about. And I discovered that um, Uh doing a PhD and writing a dissertation in the area of um, industrial relations or um, sort of uh, organizational behavior would be a way to sort of really understand what I've seen in the workforce and also develop um, sort of theories and expertise in a way that can ultimately Uh help shape the direction that we go in as a society. Um, So working with startups is really exciting because you see and you learn a lot, but not necessarily giving you the the platform for large scale change across um, how everyone does their um, organizations. Um, So what I realized was that I I really want to just understand as much as I can. um, And I'm not really ready to go back into the workforce and, and change things until I have that understanding. So, I am applying to PhDs. Mm -hmm. Uh, We'll see what happens. I'm I'm very excited about a few programs. And um, yeah, I I think it could be just like a really exciting way to um, understand the thing that I care about um, and not have these like my own experience being what I build off of. um, But there being a lot more um, knowledge from from, you know, past Mm. scholars and and uh, the entire field as, as a whole.
0: Yeah, one of uh, one of my uh, professors told me when I uh, when I considered the PhD, he said you have all the prerequisites for a PhD student, and I said, what is that? He said you're curious. That's all. You have to be so curious to learn more. Uh, that that's gonna be the the driving force that's gonna feed your your um, engine for the three to five yep. to seven years, if you're not lucky, of your research, and then yeah. pretty much for the rest of your existence. And, you know, once you're a PhD, it doesn't mean that you have to be a professor. It just means, like you said, that you actually develop a much deeper level of expertise and knowledge and you start asking the right questions, which I think this is what I love about you, that you write, you ask the right questions. You don't have to give the right answers. You just have to first ask the right question. Now, speaking of questions,
1: I think you owe me a question. I think it's my turn, but my first question, which I is not so the real question, is how many questions do I have left so I can choose accordingly? Do you? Th- is it one?
0: Or two? I, okay, great. I think you have two. All right. So yeah, I'll give you a bonus question because you know I like you, so you don't have to. But if we can, if it comes to it, I'll have a bonus.
1: question. Um, great. So <laughs> let's actually stay on the topic of school. So you you did a PhD. You did a like very action learning oriented PhD. Um, and I'd love to just know from your time mm-hmm. in school, um, whether there are any, uh, courses that you've taken or professors that you had that really changed your, your outlook, um, in your career to date. Yeah. Um,
0: so I never liked school. Let me start, start by saying that I was not, I only liked school up until high school, uh, actually up until college, cause I loved my high school. Uh, but my college experience, and I, I talked about this in a few podcasts, so I don't want to repeat it, but my college experience was not by any means motivating or, or sort of like satisfying, quite the opposite. Um, and then during my master's program, I have to say, I, I wasn't really that passionate about my professors. There were a couple who were very good at telling stories. And this is when I started to realize that, you know what, uh, actually teaching preschool, which I used to do, that was my first job, uh, when I had to learn how to tell a story, and uh, teaching in a PhD program or in a a master's program are very, very similar skills. You just have to tell a really good story. But I think what was very very, uh, impactful for me was when I had a chance to visit MIT as a master's student. And uh, I remember walking in class and seeing a couple of professors, you know, Charlie Fine and Roberto Rigobon and Roberto Fernandez, and I saw them teach in a way that was so unconventional mm-hmm. to the European traditional model. And I remember Roberto Rigobon, he threw a chalk, a piece of chalk at somebody uh, trying to get their attention. And he started speaking in Spanish. And then he, he used a few curse words. And I was like, holy guacamole, that is me. I, I, that's, that's like the, the male version of myself. And I thought, you mean somebody can be a professor like this? So I think in my case, it was not as much as the content but more the personality. And this is where I felt validated that you can have an unconventional personality and still be recognized if you want for your intellectual contributions. Um, So I think in in many, many instances, I thought I never really had a role model Mm -hmm. until very late in life. And thankfully, I, I had it when it was the right time. But that's why I believe it's so important to have such a diverse workforce. Uh, so people that are on the spectrum of extreme unconventionality or quite the opposite, right? They are very conventional. They can find somebody who looks like them, sounds like them, talk like them, right? And they they can say, I can be this,
1: you know, I, I Absolutely, can do that. Yeah, I think you touched on something really important, which is just um, the ability to find people who share a different walk of life from you, but can you can find something that resonates with them. Um, and just having that sort of variety in the places that you're working or the places that you spend your time can really just like influence you in interesting ways. So you can basically uh, sort of discover a path that you might not have other- otherwise discovered um, because someone else has made it work. So why not?
0: Yeah, and, it, and you feel validated, you know, it feels like, oh, you know, my people can do this, and you know, I I have to admit it. I'm I'm privileged. I am white. I'm a white woman, but uh, I didn't I didn't I wasn't raised uh, in a privileged environment. And I I said this many times. But in Europe, you know, being East European, it's, you're like you're the blackest black. No offense to any of my my friends, but um, East Europeans were never really considered to be the <laughs> the, the 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 if you want the um, the right the right nation so um in europe we probably don't have that much racism mm-hmm. as much as we have nationalism but i was very much raised not uh, and i was very much raised knowing that i'm not enough knowing that uh you know my my people my kind are not the right kind and uh um Going to MIT and seeing so many people from so many countries and so many accents and seeing people from Turkey and Cyprus and Bulgaria and, you know, the, the head of the uh, AI department at MIT is from Romania. And I was like, oh, my God, are you kidding me? People like people from my parts of the world can be this. I just I couldn't believe it. I, I mean, and, and you know, I'm I'm so pissed when people talk about you know when when they think diversity is just this makeup that you have to apply on your policies. It's not. It's not. If you don't, if you're a young girl who never saw another girl looking like you in a position of potential power, you will never be able to dream big enough. No, now I yeah. got really
1: excited about Me this. Me too. Got- so when I joined <laughs> Castle, which was my first job out of out of undergrad, um, I actually was not their original first offer, they had offered the job to um, another one of my friends, who for a few different reasons ended up turning it down. But one of the reasons was that it was an all white male team. Um, And she said, like, I don't I don't Mm -hmm. see myself with them. I don't think we'll get along. Um, I'm going to try a different job. And I sort of at that point also was I just knew it was the right company for me. And I, I also didn't have a lot of options and got very lucky that um, this was just the the perfect fit. Um, and I ended up taking it. But there are there are plenty of people who will turn down a great opportunity just because they don't see themselves at that company and they don't see themselves represented. Um, and it could be a waste for, for the company to not let yeah. that happen or to let that happen.
0: Absolutely. I mean. When I went I and I I don't know if I said this enough, but I do wanna say it. When I studied in Switzerland, we didn't have one female faculty. At least not in my program. Maybe they were in the entire faculty body, maybe there were two. I don't remember. Maybe they were too. And of course, I wouldn't look around and be like, yeah, I think I want to be a professor. I mean, look, this one is a professor. When everybody was mm-hmm. in their late 60s, was a white man who sat down at the, mm-hmm. at the desk and read from a book. So why would I want to be something like that when the model that I had in front of me was so anti, anti-thesis to what I was, right? So when uh, when people tell me today that you are such an unconventional professor, I say, good, you should not expect that everybody looks like that. You should not expect that they are all you know, old men sitting from a, you know, reading from a book sitting in a chair because the truth is they are not. There are men and women and gay and straight and trans and every color in the rainbow Mm -hmm. and people that are up and down and, you know. So, yeah, expect that. I I, I feel like probably one of the things that really pisses me off, besides the, the funny part of being unconventional professor when they say, oh my God, you don't look like a professor. And I'm like, maybe it's about time that you stop thinking about, that you stop changing your stereotypes, that you stop, you know, thinking that this is the pattern of what Absolutely. somebody should I think look like.
1: that there should be more Professor Loredanas in the world and maybe less of the sit in a chair and read out of a book type of professor. So and maybe more professors Amanda
0: <laughs> and more professors, you know, Jonathan, and more professors Shukwiha or whatever that is. But I, I do think that representation matters. And I I I actually had a question for you, but um you know this is my bonus question i'm going to ask you a bonus question because first of all, this is my podcast, so I can do whatever I want but <laughs> we were we were talking the other day about the u uh, uh, s elections and the fact that we have the first woman vice president and I have to say I mean I pay taxes in the United States I'm not a citizen, so please uh, uh, forgive me if I dare to talk about you know this topic. but I feel like this is such a bullshit it's 2020 and we make such a big deal that we have a first Vice uh, president, that it's a female. In 2020, we shouldn't talk about this with so much joy. We should talk about it like, I can't believe that this is happening in the country that is considered itself to be the most, whatever, in the world, open minded in the world. But my question for you would be this. And I know this is my sixth question, but like I said, this is my podcast. I can do whatever the fuck I want. What would you well, do if you were elected President of the United States now and you would start in January 2021? What would be your primary thing on your agenda as a young, smart, woman? Wow, that is a
1: really woman? great question. Um, I, let me think about that. So I... Let me, let me, just, let
0: me just admit it, that somebody <laughs> asked me this question on a podcast, on my podcast. Yeah. And it took me by surprise. And then... I have to tell you, Amanda. A few seconds later, <laughs> I thought, I wonder what Amanda would say. It really went through no, my mind. So I, I was like, okay, I'm
1: "No, on. it's so it's I a great question. question." And um, I think, yeah, the the context of what's going on in the US is is really important, um, especially for those who have been following the election or are um, in the US. I think what we've seen is um, with the with the Trump administration. The he's he's not the problem. He's the symptom of a larger problem that has been persistent in the U S for a really long time. And many people wanted to look the other way Um, when it comes to just the disenfranchisement of rural Americans. um, What we're even learning now and has been called uh, deaths of despair, which is the growth of suicide rates or death by Mm -hmm. um, sort of uh, intoxication, death by um, overdose um, is is plaguing a lot of communities um, that have, have lost jobs, have lost their livelihood, have lost their identity. Um, and Trump came along and he was sort of a someone that people could get behind. And he was sort of an advocate um, for these communities and, and was reaching out to them specifically. Um, what we are, I believe, is that he wasn't necessarily helping those communities, but he was at least speaking to them. And that's not going away. Um, yeah. There, he's Well, first of all, he's still in office and I'm like holding my breath every day that that. Uh, transition will go on as planned. Um, (laughs) but what I think I'm worried about with the upcoming administration is we'll, we'll sort of go back to, you know, business as usual in a way that still leaves these communities behind. Um, so what I believe that the country needs, I mean, there's, there's many things, but, um, the the biggest changes for me uh, would be the amount of money and lobbying that comes from sort of big Wall Street and finance interests that um, can sort of reduce the, the efficacy of any policies that are meant to regulate big, um, you know, people who are yeah. Yeah. in Silicon Valley. Oh, yeah, Silicon that too. is let's, super, let's super important. Um, they are now, they're now the big guys. Um, they're not the, like, we're the scrappy startups. Don't, don't bother yeah. us. They're monopolies. Are you kidding me?
0: No,
1: no, no. They are absolutely, sailing tanks and I in think that you know that is not healthy for our democracy. Um, that's where a lot of um, sort of the the policies get shaped by the people who have the money, and and that is something that we don't get to see as much on the ground. But you can sort of imagine just how how important it is to to please those people um, and you know keep them happy because they're bringing these jobs. But at the end of the day, they're also they have too much power. Um, but then on the other end of the scale, I think that what we also need is, um, I wouldn't say unions in their old, um, sort of traditional format, but, um, during the 1950s, 1960s, um, all of these jobs that people are now nostalgically pining over, like the coal mining jobs, the, um, the trucker jobs that, uh, you know, got, that people lost, um, They weren't ever good jobs, but they were jobs that had really strong union backing, which meant that they could have good wages and benefits. Mm. Uh, And it it just allowed workers to have more power in the conversation. So I don't and I don't necessarily think those are the jobs that we want to bring back, but we want to bring back jobs that um, people have some power in uh, the in the discussion around, um, you know, like I want this many hours per week. I don't want this job where I get you know however many hours you give me, and then I can't feed my family um we need to have that kind of stability and that exactly. kind of power um and it's It's not a bad thing. We look at unions and say like oh they they're bad for business, but if you really look at um sort of the history of unions there it it just adds a power balance that I think that we're looking at.
0: Exactly. It's which side of the business. It's it, which side of the business, right? Because you say it's bad for the business, but it's bad for the profit. Exactly. Exactly. That's and if you're building a
1: business off of the backs of workers who can't feed their families, do you really have a business model that works?
0: Exactly. I, I never, never understood how is it possible that in United States, uh, you cannot uh, sustain yourself with one full time job that you need in many instances to have two full-time jobs and in many many cases Mm -hmm. women tend to carry most of the load in in Mm these families and take a second job that is a a really crappy job but it gives you those I don't know 500 extra dollars a month which pretty much feeds your family (laughs) this is becoming a political podcast and I love it I feel like I've been waiting for you to finally make some time to to talk to me about these things and also for those of you listening one of the reasons why I love to have Normal people from normal walks of life who look like, you know, you and me is to make you realize that you don't have to be famous, you don't have to be a celebrity, you don't have to be on the cover of Rolling Stone to have a very interesting perspective to have a powerful perspective, and to have your voice worth listening to all right amanda one final question for from you to me
1: and okay then I'll well my question you i have a couple of questions to choose from so let's see i think i'm gonna go with this sort of curveball um and it's a little bit more personal and hope can uh, talk about it a little bit. Okay. Um, so I'm someone who's who's very close with my older brother. We got closer as uh, basically after I graduated college. We weren't that close growing up, um, but now he's you know one of the people that I respect and admire most in my life. Um, and I think that when we talk about, you know, the people who shaped us, we often look at our um, our parents and say, like, oh, this is how they raised us. This is how maybe now how I am. Um, and I know that you have a brother who you've spoken about before. And I'm just really curious, um, sort of the role that you see of having a good sibling relationship in your life and how that's shaped you and uh, made you the person who you are.
0: What a beautiful question. And Mm -hmm. I'm going to try to answer without getting too emotional Mm -hmm. about it because I haven't seen my brother since February. And for the past, I would say, six years, ever since I moved to Malaysia, we see each other at least three times a year. Mm -hmm. And most of the time we spend our vacations together. So um, when we grew up, we were not very close. I think quite the opposite. We were uh, very much fighting for the attention of our parents. And I felt like he always won. And I think one of the reasons why I left home, to be honest, when I was 14, I felt like I'm I'm never gonna win this war, even though it should have never been a war. But let's be very honest. Every parent has a favorite sibling, and there's always a, a, a parent that is more assertive than the other parent, right? In a in a relationship between the mother and the father, there's always one that is more assertive, and this is where the siblings are gonna fight for for the affection. And I think for Hmm, at least 10 years. Uh, we were just members of the same family, but without sharing anything personal. And then when I moved to Switzerland, and especially when I ran my my ski resort and the hotel, uh, he came He came a couple of times um, uh, in the summers. We spent some of the winters together and we started spending vacations together. And I, I started to get to know my brother for the first time in my life, believe it or not. I get to know I got to know my brother as an adult, and I think he got to know me as an adult and uh, i I came to uh, rely on him very much, and I think he relies on me very much and I think what is fascinating about having a family member that you love is that it truly is unconditional love and unquestionable love like the the two of us um, uh, bought a piece of land together in Transylvania, which is my heaven um uh, we call it the saint the saint valley and um when he found it he said i found a piece of land i think this is it and i'm like okay let's buy it it wasn't even a question like oh i don't know let me see or when i do something and i say mm-hmm. you know what let's let's do this he's like okay i'm ready let's go and um i think i don't know what it's like to have a husband or children but i think having a sibling um it's very much unconditional love, um, un mm-hmm. unquestionable love, non judging love, um, and I'm so so yeah. grateful that I got to meet him <laughs> to get to know him. If you want later in life, but I, no, that, I really that, feel that like that I'm very not much alone resonates
1: anymore. with me. The my brother and I grew up completely similar in that we you know we were kind of ships passing in the night. We didn't talk much, we didn't share much, but as adults, uh, we really connected and. Um, Now he's someone I can totally rely on and um, have as as a support system. So there's hope for anyone who's not close with their siblings. Maybe you'll meet them as an adult.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Amen to that. All right. I saved my last question for you. We completely changed the format, which I'm so happy about because... How would this be an unconventional podcast if every podcast sounded the same, right? So my last question uh, for you, Amanda, is actually not a question, but it's advice. Um, I have to tell you, this started as a silly assignment and now I have over a thousand plays of of this podcast. And I have people who write me, people that I don't know who write me and they say, you know, when your guest said this, it resonated with me. And I have to tell you, I'm honest when I say this, I am mind blown because I feel like there's so many good podcasts out there. What do you do on mine? But I feel like, you know, if somebody resonates with something that you or I or I or any other guest say, then, you know, even if it's just one person, we won, right? So my question for you is, what advice do you have for people who are unconventional, but they are still in the conventional closet and they don't have if you want the strength to come out and truly be themselves? What can we do
1: to Great be truly question. unconventional? Um, and I hate to break it to you on the 1,000 views for podcast, but it's only going to keep growing. It's definitely... <laughs> Yay! Especially after this episode. Are you kidding me? We're going to be like political traction. Um, <laughs> so I, I have sort of two pieces of advice. The first actually comes from a TED Talk that I... Uh, discovered a long time ago and uh, really love. And uh, so it's Scott Dinsmore, how to find work you love. But something that he says in it um, has always been, it's sort of become this mantra, which is you're the average of the five people that you spend the most time with. Um, And and that completely Uh changed my mindset around um, how to get out of my comfort zone. And sometimes you just have to look at where you are and see that, the people around you may not be pushing you. They may not be moving you in the direction that you want to go. And, um, and that's okay if you're, if you're comfortable with that. But if you're looking for a change, sometimes you just have to meet new people um, and sort of those people who can challenge you, who can push you to uh, and even be role models for you, be support systems um, to get you to sort of move out of your, your current uh, habits or um, current ways of thinking. And and sometimes some of those relationships are toxic and you have to you have to get um, yourself removed from them. And those can be your biggest barriers to really moving into, a let's call it a better version of yourself. Um, and my second piece of advice is is just following your curiosity. Um, and I sort of at the top of the podcast mentioned, like, I was not someone who really did anything out of my comfort zone or who um, spent any time sort of thinking outside the box. I just really wanted to. Um, just get by um, and do good, quote unquote good, whatever that meant. And uh, a lot of things mm. changed throughout throughout my life, but um, one of the biggest changes in in at least following my career interests was um, a decision that my partner actually encouraged me to do, which was uh, to quit my job um, at the end of, of the the uh, time I spent at the second startup in in Detroit. Uh, I was incredibly unhappy. I was sort of getting pushed around by management who wanted me to do different things that they thought I was interested in, but it never felt right to me. Um, and I was always sort of a yes, yes, woman uh, like that is uh, OK, I'll do that. Yeah. I'll do that. Um, and I was just like completely like hard coiled inside, not um, doing what I wanted. And I had the I had the privilege of having the savings to to be able to quit. Not everyone has that type of comfort level. Um, But what ended up happening is that when I didn't have these other people in my life directing how I used my time, I was finally alone with my own thoughts and my own interests. And I had to figure out what made me curious Um, for basically the first time where it wasn't a homework assignment. It wasn't a job assignment. I was the one who had to say, like, this is how I'm going to spend my time and this is what I want to learn about. And that's when I actually started writing. and, And the first thing that I wrote about was I just wanted to know how ant colonies worked. Like I wanted to know how they worked. And, like, and that started my whole writing journey <laughs> and um, sort of writing these articles that um, I sort of put together more for myself. But they're always a way that I can keep learning and uh, keep growing and finding new interests and um, discovering things about myself along the way.
0: I, uh, I took so many notes as you were speaking because um, I recently spoke on one of the episodes mm-hmm. about breaking up with friends that are not anymore the, the people that you want them to be or that you need them to be. And that sometimes, you know, sometimes it's easier to break up with a romantic partner than it's to break up with a friend. But I think you're absolutely right. I think if the five people that you constantly surround yourself with uh, are not anymore the people that push you, the people that make you curious, or the people that bring the best of you, then maybe you need to change the circle of friends. Now, I have to say, I absolutely. hope that you will always stay in my circle of friends. Um, Once again, evidence that you are extraordinary and highly unconventional. I think the world of academics would be so, so, so lucky to have one of you, uh, one like you, you specifically in in our ranks. I would be honored to call you my colleague. I'm honored to call you my student right now. Thank you so very much for being on the Five on Five on the Unconventional Professor podcast, Amanda Silver. Uh, Stand by everybody for the lesson of the day even though I have to say after this almost hour with Amanda I'm not really sure that I can teach you anything. Welcome back everyone to the lesson of the day even though like I said before I feel like Amanda pretty much taught us a lot of things today but i do want to build on something that we we talked about and uh, i think the lesson of the day for me would be um that you have to remember that you are very much a function of the people that you associate yourself with um darren hardy uh, is an american writer he said the people you associate with determine can determine up to 95 percent of your success or failure in life now that sounds to me like A massive, massive responsibility. But I want to talk a little bit about breaking up with friends. (laughs) I know, very unexpected subject in the in the lesson of the day. But uh, Amanda said that you're the average of the five people you surround yourself with, and I remember as a child, my mother always telling me, "I don't want you to be friends with that girl, or I don't want you to be friends with that boy. She's not going to teach you good things." And I always thought, that's such a judgmental thing to say. Uh, but the truth is that sometimes the, the people that you surround yourself with will be the people that will um, will probably uh, validate fears and they will be the, the, the voice of the um, uh, inner saboteur, like RuPaul says, since Amanda and I talked about RuPaul, RuPaul talks about having an inner saboteur, somebody who will always tell you you're not good enough. And in his case, the voice is somewhere in yourself. But what I experienced in my life is that you can sometimes surround yourself with people that are becoming that saboteur. I remember I was in college and um, I, uh, I wasn't really cool at all. I'm, I'm not cool now, let's be very honest, but back in college, boy, oh boy, was I a nerd. And somehow I became the object of attention of the most popular girl in, um, in my program. And I never really understood why she wants to hang out with me. And then I realized when we were hanging out together, she would always introduce me as this is my very smart friend. And uh, don't look at her because she's very smart. And I, I didn't know exactly what to make of that. I was like, hmm, so I'm, I, I guess I'm not fashionable. Like I guess I'm not good looking, uh, but I'm smart. So this is what validates me. Uh, but then I realized that actually she was using me as a validator to herself. And uh, at some point, a few years later, uh, I, uh, I sort of I, I wrote her a, a letter and I said, "I think we need to break up. I think this friendship is not good for me, and I, I, I don't want to be who you want me to be in your life." And she was like, "You don't break up with friends." And I was like, well, "I guess you, I do watch me." And then a few years ago, I actually had a, a very painful breakup with a friend who um, accused me that i don't give her enough attention and uh, i have to say i think one of the things that i do well and if you're one of my friends and i don't do it please call me on it but i think i give a lot of attention to my friends i think i make a lot of efforts to come and visit um, to to know about your life to know about even your children even though i'm not very much a kids person And when she told me this, my first reaction was to call her and say, how can you say this? You know, look at all the things that I've done for you. And then as I was thinking about the call or the email that I wanted, I wanted to write her and tell her all the things that I did for her or for our relationship, I realized I actually don't want to do this. I think um, maybe this is the beginning of the end. And maybe this is the sign of, of breaking up with a friend and maybe this is one of the five people that I have in my life that I should not have anymore and breaking up with a friend I think it's even more painful than breaking up with a partner uh, because friends go way beyond romantic interest and I think we invest in friends a lot more than we invest in in you know romantic relationships that come and go but uh, it took me a lot of emotional maturity to realize that sometimes people grow out of, of out of interest and sometimes people grow out of their common path. And uh, yeah, sometimes you are not one of the five people that I need in my life. And it might sound very selfish and self-centric, but guess what? I have to be self-centric. I have to be selfish. At the end of the day, it is very much my life. And I will thank you for walking the path with me. But I will also thank you for allowing me to start walking this path alone. So yeah, having people directing your life, like Amanda said, sometimes it's good if the people are good, sometimes it's bad if people are directing you in a very, very wrong direction. So if you are in a friendship relationship with somebody and you feel like they should not be part of the five people in your circle or the 10 or however many people you have, I think it's okay to break up. This was the lesson of the day with your unconventional professor thank you so very much for tuning in once again for one of the episodes um, and uh, i guess i will see you when i see you class dismissed